0: If you're looking for a way to help birds or take your support to the next level, this May I would love for you to join the Birds Canada Birdathon. It's easy to participate in and helps raise thousands of dollars for bird conservation. Learn more at birdscanada.org/slash birdathon. Now let's get to the episode. You're listening to the warblers of Birds Canada Podcast. I'm Andrea Grass. Join me and others as we travel on common flight paths with our guests, gaining insights and inspiration from the world of birds and bird conservation in Canada. Welcome to another episode of the Warblers Podcast. Some of our more recent episodes have been part of our Wake Up Call series, where we take deep dives into specific species that are at risk and explore conservation issues surrounding those birds. If you haven't already, check out those episodes. They're really good. I personally found a new love in leeches storm petrels, and we've got many more really cool species yet to be featured. When we talk about those specific species and their threats and challenges, I can't help but notice that habitat loss is a really common threat. A loss of biodiversity, a loss of natural areas, and it's kind of big and scary, like large-scale stuff. So that's why I'm excited about today's topic. It's going to be hopefully a little bit more uplifting because we're learning about something that can lead to larger-scale change, and that is key biodiversity areas. So this is an international collaborative program, with really great potential for a lasting impact. Today, I'm joined by Andrew Couturier and Amanda Beekle, both of whom have been deeply involved in key biodiversity areas through their work with Birds Canada. Andrew is Senior Director of the Landscape Science and Conservation, and Amanda is the Key Biodiversity Areas Coordinator. So we are in very good hands with these two. Welcome to the podcast, you guys. Thank you for having us. Wonderful to be here. Thanks. Before we dig in, I want everyone to know that we're going to be using a lot of acronyms in this episode. If you lose track of what they are, just check the show notes and we'll have a full list. The most important one, though, is KBA, which refers to key biodiversity areas. We use it a lot because it makes our lives a whole lot easier. So let's get into it. Amanda, what exactly is a key biodiversity area?
1: So a KBA or key biodiversity area, simply put, is a site that's important for the persistence of a species or ecosystem. But, you know, there's so much more (laughs) than that, really. So it's kind of a new designation that IUCN and BirdLife International and I think 12 other global organizations laid out in 2016. And For the first time, it'll take into account all species and ecosystems. These are places that are designated for species at risk or rare species like the iconic whooping crane, species that aggregate like a nesting site for seabirds, for example. There's a site in the Yukon that's, I think, less than a kilometer square designated for a dune tachinid fly, which is this fly species at risk or as large as um, an ecosystem KBA that we might be designating later for large swaths of boreal forests, for example, for, um, for ecosystem integrity. They can also be on public, private, or protected land, like a national park, for example. Um, and they can also be terrestrial, marine, or freshwater systems. So they're really, really diverse.
0: So unlike previous standards for protecting an area where we might focus on, say, just a single species... KBAs are a broader scale. Many listeners might have heard of or visited even an IBA, which is an important bird area. The IBA system's been around for many, many years, but key biodiversity areas are kind of a newer thing and they're shaking up the norm.
2: The two systems are remarkably similar, which isn't surprising because KBAs are actually built on the foundation of IBAs. Um, Both have rigorous uh, quantitative criteria that are used for defining what a, what a site is and what it isn't. Um, but there are a number of differences. And the most obvious is that KBAs encompass all biodiversity, while IBAs focus solely on birds. And so, you know, we've always known that IBAs are important for more than just birds. We've actually done analyses that show the variety of life that are captured within our Canadian IBAs. But the criteria for defining IBAs uh, are only concerned with the bird element. So that's a that's a big difference. So we're we're trying to bring all biodiversity under one roof with this system and that's the real power of this is that it will have a conservation currency if you will across the globe all under one system. One of the most novel things about KBAs is the partnership aspect. So the consortium of the world's largest environmental NGOs that have come together to develop and support the KBA agenda. And to my knowledge, This may be the first time that the environmental community has come together on this scale. It's pretty exciting.
1: We're so lucky to work with Mainly two partners, Wildlife Conservation Society of Canada and Nature Surf Canada. And with us, Birds Canada, we all three of us make up the KBA Secretariat for Canada. There's also a broader group called the KBA Coalition that includes a whole bunch of organizations, nature organizations in Canada, like Nature Conservancy of Canada, Environment and Climate Change Canada, Indigenous groups
0: and other uh, organizations. We're essentially talking about a wide scale international effort to define and protect our most significant natural areas.
2: It gives it uh, legitimacy across the whole world.
0: KBAs sound like a real positive move forward, but we can't dismiss all the good that came from the IBA system. We learned a lot. Andrew, you've been with Birds Canada for a long time. 25-year milestone.
1: (laughs)
2: yes that's right
0: (laughs) okay so with 25 years under your belt could you tell us a bit more about the long history of identifying and monitoring important bird areas so
2: back in the day um, through 1996 and 2001 or so we identified approximately 600 sites across Canada as part of the IBA program at that time roughly 100 sites received conservation plans so we worked in partnership with Community organizations and community partners and local partners and so on to write up these conservation plans of what should happen at these IBAs in the future going forward to address potential threats or to, uh, you know, to increase conservation at these places. And over the years, you know, it has been over 25 years, millions of dollars have been invested in conservation projects and initiatives in the 600 sites as part of the network. So that's pretty cool. One of the more substantial things that was done was establishing a caretaker network. IBA caretakers are stewards of sites. They typically live nearby these sites and they adopt them as their own. They arrange for, let's say, bird monitoring of the site to make sure that uh, birds are continuing to use the site. They might um, conduct education activities. they might uh, advocate for uh, conservation or protection of sites. They might spearhead initiatives such as putting up educational and interpretive signage really the, It really runs the gamut of the type of activities that they um, that they would coordinate, and so people can get involved and these these sites can become hubs for various conservation activities. Um, Amanda. Uh, led a, a bioblitz, for example, in one of our um, significant forest
3: IBAs in southwestern Ontario. How do you like your coffee, Andrea? Cream? Sure?
0: I like mine bird-friendly, certified.
3: Then I have just the brew for you. Birds and Beans Coffee Roasters only use beans from farmers who keep the native forest habitat intact, growing coffee in the shade of a variety of native trees
0: that's good for migratory birds
3: good for everyone this coffee is even certified by the smithsonian migratory bird center it protects biodiversity supports sustainable farming and its fur trade and organic too
0: (sighs) ah not to mention delicious
3: deliciously bird-friendly. If any of our listeners also like their coffee bird-friendly certified, here's how to get it. Order online at birdsandbeans.ca slash warblers. Make sure to use the slash warblers because that means birds and beans will also donate 10% of the purchase price to support this podcast. You can also use the link on your podcast player.
0: Sounds great. Andreas, how about another cup? Let's do it. I love hearing the human side of these things. It's one thing to protect, say, a remote area of wilderness, but it's another thing entirely to actually involve locals in the conservation and to pursue grander outreach and education around those areas. It sounds like IBAs have certainly resulted in conservation action
2: for birds. Also, interesting is that we've had some policy wins with IBAs. It's well known within the consulting community and industry. You know when they're considering development proposals and conducting environmental assessments that ibas are part of that process we were also successful in having ibas mentioned specifically in the wind energy siting guidelines so so that wind turbines should not be situated within ibas for example
0: this is really great to hear shifting gears just a little bit back to the new kba system it sounds like it's been quite the undertaking. Amanda, could you tell us a little bit more about what's going on behind the scenes?
1: It's such a huge project. I mean, when you're in it every day, it doesn't seem so overwhelming. But when you step back, there's so much going on. I checked this dashboard this morning, and there's right now 1,056 sites in progress. And that includes our sites that we're reassessing to become KBAs. Once those actually become KBAs and we're, air quotes, done the process of identifying KBAs. They actually estimate that it'll cover over 10% of Canada. So it's (laughs) kind of a huge, huge deal um, identifying that many sites across Canada that are so important for biodiversity. But like I said earlier, we're really thankful for our partners. WCS, or Wildlife Conservation Society of Canada, is identifying new sites across Canada for, well, you name it, fungus, fish, mosses, butterflies, mussels. And then NatureServe, our other partner, is making what are called eBAR maps. So ecosystem-based automated range maps. And they use these for a whole bunch of things, but uh, for KBAs, they map priority species.
0: Yay for having awesome partners. And what's been going on on the Birds Canada side?
1: A big part of what we've been doing for the past two years is reassessing our important bird and biodiversity areas as key biodiversity areas. So this is a big process that we didn't really have any precursor to. We just had to kind of go with the flow and (laughs) and figure out what we were doing. What we did was we took all of our IBA boundaries. We took new population estimates for all birds across Canada. We also gathered all the data that fell within IBAs from nature count.
0: Heck yeah, Nature Counts. If you don't know what Nature Counts is, it's basically a warehouse of data that Birds Canada manages for all of our citizen science projects. So if you've ever joined a Christmas bird count, for example, or been part of an atlas, Nature Counts is where that data gets housed.
1: We found there's 17 million records across Canada and 50,000 of those were found in IBAs that qualified for new KBA criteria. So we use that KBA criteria to see what IBAs would qualify for KBAs. So that's the first kind of behind the scenes technical piece of our project. And then going forward, we are reaching out to experts. After that analysis, we found that around 450 of our existing IBAs are likely to become KBAs.
0: This is really putting all that citizen science data to good use. But of course, not just birds are considered.
1: One example is Haida Gwaii has some potential new KBAs for killer whales that might overlap with our existing sites for seabirds.
0: Shout out to all of those partners and all of the people who have contributed data to these massive databases, you know, like, you mentioned Christmas bird count, right? Like that's, that's where some of that data is going, folks. So thank you so much for getting out and participating in those events and, and being a, a part of it all. This is kind of interesting because we are moving away from the taxa-focused approach of IBAs, like really bird-specific, to something kind of broader biodiversity approach. What do you think is going to be the ultimate impact of that, Andrew?
2: Yeah, this is really exciting. And this is where the rubber really hits the road. The KBA tool is much, much stronger than any other tool that came before it. Previously, we had separate systems for birds, such as IBAs. We had a separate system for plants, a separate one for mammals, insects, and the list goes on. This fractured approach, you know, it wasn't all bad. It served a purpose at the time, but ultimately it was flawed. We've seen that. And so the KBA approach, we think, should and will unite the conservation community governments, industry, and Canadians at large when it comes to conserving Canada's critical places for birds. That's what we hope. And we can already see this with our own federal government because KBAs are actually written into the process to conserve 30% of Canada's lands and waters by 2030. And so this is to meet Canada's commitments to the Convention on Biological Diversity. And KBAs are written right in there as a tool to help ensure that the quality of places that are conserved is very high. We wouldn't want large expanses of barren land, for example, Mm -hmm. to be protected. Why not focus on areas that give us the most bang for our buck with biodiversity, conservation and ecosystem Mm -hmm. services? So that's the idea. The federal government is very much on board. Most or some of the provincial and territorial governments are also on board, and Indigenous communities are starting to to realize the value of this tool to themselves as well. And so none of this ever happened with the disparate systems of the past. I really do think that bringing everything together under one roof provides a simplicity and a power that didn't exist when we had all these separate pillars all working independently. So I think that in itself is going to be a a real game changer.
0: Yeah, I'd say so. Like, I think for the average person... You know, maybe someone's not hardcore into birds, so when you're protecting a bird-specific habitat, eh, right for that person. But if you're specific- protecting like this grand, biodiverse area, that's maybe a bit easier for them to understand and appreciate. You know, they see the full image of it. That's uh, right. And I think probably our governments and decision makers are kind of the same way, right?
2: Yeah, this is where we're hoping that we can really uh, widen the tent, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So we've we've been stewarding sites for birds all along, you know, for 25 years or so. But we want other people to get interested in mm-hmm. this, not just, not just our birding friends, but our the wider group of friends in the naturalist community and communities at large, actually. And so this trend, I guess, is not just happening in Canada, but worldwide KBAs are gaining traction as a primary tool for halting and reversing biodiversity loss, because we're identifying the best places where we can act. And so, with the with the twin crises of biodiversity and climate threatening to topple our planet's life support systems, we need solutions that are really razor sharp and focused on the quality that I was talking about. Um, so. We, we don't have time to waste, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> really. Uh, it's, it's quite urgent that we get on with this business of conserving what we have left before it's too late.
0: That's fantastic. But what are some of the potential threats that face KBAs or candidate KBAs in Canada?
2: So in terms of threats, it really runs the gamut of what you might expect. Climate change can, of course, be an issue for some sites. So we could think about, uh, you know, our coastal sites that might be vulnerable to shifts in uh, water levels, marshes that might dry up from increased drought, mountainous sites that might become too warm, effectively squeezing out organisms as the temperature rises up the sides of the mountain, that kind of thing. Another big one is invasive species. These are known to be understood to be destroying ecosystems across Canada. Some of our sites will need concerted management or even restoration. I can think of a really poignant example right near home where I live, Long Point, it was taken over by an invasive plant species. And, and there's been concerted effort to knock that back. And now you can see the marsh rejuvenating itself.
0: Oh yeah, invasive Phragmites is a terrible one. Phragmites wasn't really on my radar before I moved to Ontario, but for people who are less familiar with this one, it's essentially a very tall and hardy grass species. It spreads super quickly and grows really dense, doesn't allow room for any other life, and takes over entire ecosystems in wetlands and along waterways if it's not kept in check. So like, plovers... Turtles, you name it—they're they're impacted by this awful, awful plant. Oh, I could ramble all day about invasive species. What other issues are we talking about?
2: You get into the usual kinds of things like incompatible development activities. A really strong example is the port expansion that's uh, proposed in Vancouver, which could be very detrimental to the food supply of migrating shorebirds. There's a lot of concern for our future KBAs. Uh, you know that we'll be able to withstand all of these kinds of threats and will be able to mitigate them. And then, of course, you get into cumulative impacts, which are kind of a separate category of threat, where you have sites that are bombarded by all kinds of things at once. And collectively, this degrades the quality of the site. And those are particularly hard to manage because typically we look at impacts on a one-by-one basis. But when you look at them cumulatively, it can, it can tell a different story and you could end up with ecosystem collapses, for example, if you leave it too late.
0: It's reassuring that we're identifying these areas now, that we've got incredible databases about the species that occupy them, and that we've got such large partnerships and volunteers and, and government getting on board. And, and hopefully we're all going to work together to protect these areas. Yes. Yes, that's the hope. KBAs can be found in really surprising locations, like even urban areas. The Leslie Street Spit in downtown Toronto is a perfect example. This designation is going to help draw attention to the incredible nature that we have close to our homes. Ah, I feel like I've held this question in far, far too long. Do each of you have a favorite KBA?
1: <laughs> it might be the same one. Oh, yeah?
2: I bet it is. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You go ahead. Well, you know what? I'm not going to say my favorite then, (laughs) because I know Andrew. I know Andrew will talk about it. Let's uh, let's go to the one uh, just north of the one Andrew will say is his favorite. (laughs) Uh, I really, actually, it is a really special place in my heart. The Norfolk Forest IBA soon to be KBA it uh, that's where andrew mentioned i had a bio blitz along with a whole bunch of scientists it was really fun but also i just really love walking around the the old growth forests in that kba it's it's just gorgeous
2: yeah and for me uh, no surprise to amanda it's got to be long point it's close to where we live and it's just a remarkable sight at all times of year really you have your migrating waterfowl that come through by the tens of thousands In early spring, you have tundra swans coming through, you have probably millions of songbirds migrating through, you have incredible biodiversity in terms of plants, toads, snakes, you name it. There's a lot going on at Longpoint, and it's just a place that works its way into your heart, and I just love it.
0: Yeah. I guess we can have two favorites. Sure. Sure. Yeah, yeah, that's that's totally allowed. <laughs> so the official launch of the KBA program is going to happen probably within a few weeks of this episode being released, which is very exciting. Congrats to both of you for all the work that's been leading up to this. Uh, what new tools and resources can people expect to uh, to be able to explore and, and learn more? The launch in Ottawa will be happening uh,
2: very soon after this episode is released. And this will be a A celebratory event to really launch the awareness of KBAs in Canada. We are far from finished identifying where all the sites are going to be. That is a years-long process, but um, this is kind of the kickoff, let's call it, to KBAs in Canada, where we're really trying to raise the profile of KBAs. The Minister of Environment will be there at the federal level, as well as leaders from conservation NGOs and industry and anyone who's uh, who's been engaged in the KBA process so far to bring everyone together, really to celebrate the launch of this tool and this this new website, this tool that will be used to inform better conservation across Canada.
1: I really wish I could show everyone right now, but I guess they'll have to wait till until October and check it out themselves. Um, but it's really exciting and really beautifully designed collection of tools. I guess yeah, we. Took all this technical stuff and we, with the designers, uh, the developers and a whole bunch of, you know, they let the scientists loose on a web page and really cool things happen. There is a map. It will show sites that have already been nominated and accepted and then sites in progress as well. So that'll change all the time as we get new sites approved. And it'll have, you know, special filters on the side. There's also a site search page with the same filters. And then when you choose a specific site, you'll get a whole bunch of information about the species that are found there, about the habitat and the threats and just a site description, conservation initiatives at the site. And also there'll be some cool tools associated with iNaturalist and eBird for each site as well. There's also a species search. So any species that triggers a KBA in Canada, you'll be able to search it and learn a lot more about it.
0: It's really neat, actually. I got a sneak peek and it's going to be a great resource for people to learn about protected areas, specific species. There's going to be blogs, webinars, all kinds of super sciencey information broken down and into a a really digestible and easy-to-use website. So perfect for anyone from educators or families with kids to city planners and decision makers. Congrats on all the work you've both put into this, seriously. These wonderful new resources will be up and running in early October of 2022. Follow Birds Canada on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter to get the most recent updates on the launch. So for folks who are just finding this podcast now, this is a podcast by Birds Canada. We've talked about ourselves a lot throughout this episode, but we're a nonprofit charitable organization that works to protect wild birds in Canada. If you like the podcast, please subscribe, leave a rating and review. That's going to help us reach more people and ultimately make a bigger, positive impact for our birds. You can also visit our website to make a donation or learn more about any of our programs. That's birdscanada.org. So again, thank you so much, Amanda and Andrew. I have loved learning about KBAs and I'm so excited for our listeners to you know, crack into those new resources and go discover their own local KBAs.
1: Thank you so much for having us. I love listening to this podcast. So it was an honor to be on it.
0: Indeed.
2: Our pleasure. Thanks so much.
0: Awesome. Thank you. The Warblers is produced by Jody Allaire, Ruth Friendship Keller, Kate Doglish, and Andrea Gress. This episode was edited by Greg McLaughlin and engineered by Katie Jang, with music by Jose Mora and art by Alex Nickel. Until next time, keep birding!